Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and go to the book of First Peter, chapter two. First Peter, chapter two. First Peter is all about hope for struggling and suffering believers. Um, I've preached a couple of messages over the past year or so from First Peter, chapter one, and we'll begin in First Peter, chapter two today. And it gives us much hope. If you have headings in your Bible, you probably see something in First Peter chapter 1 talking about a living hope that we have been raised with Christ, that we have hope in his resurrection from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled. And no matter what we see around us that is decaying and going bad and corrupting, we our hope is not found in those things. It's found in a future eternal salvation. That's Peter's encouragement uh, for his initial readers and for us today. The second half of verse of chapter one uh, talks about the stability we can have based on that hope, specifically ending with confidence in the stability of God's abiding word. We've been born again by the power of God's abiding word. Now, chapter two begins some application of that new birth. How then should we live as the church of God that Jesus is building in light of that new birth through the word of God and this newfound hope that we have that raises us above our present sufferings as we just sang about to understand Christ as our hope in life and death. So the theme of First Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 that we will look at today is that Christ, the living stone, is building his church. Christ, the living stone, is building his church. Would you read with me chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1 of First Peter? So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God's chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together. 
Almighty God, we come before you in submission to your truth today. Not only to analyze it or to intellectually comprehend it, but to submit to it in obedience, in reverence. For all else will pass away, but the word of God remains forever. We trust in you today and we trust in your word. I pray that this message would be an encouragement to all who listen, to those who know Jesus Christ, who have believed and have received his honor. I pray that they would see the hope of Christ, the cornerstone upon their, which their faith is built, and the unity that we have because of that. For those who do not yet know Jesus as Savior, who are hearing this message today, may they understand that they can receive the mercy of Almighty God if they simply believe and have faith and trust in salvation only through the work of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God, through Christ, is building His church. And Peter uses several comparisons. He uses metaphors. He uses Old Testament allusions in this passage. And it's actually not very complicated, but if you don't look, you can kind of see what, what comparisons he were using right now. What, what verse is he quoting from the Old Testament? It's very simple. We'll work through all of that. But the big idea is that Jesus is the living stone. He's the cornerstone of the church. He's building his church today. Now, the first part of chapter 2 begins with some pretty heavy admonitions. We'll get later in the passage, as we read, to some glorious, uplifting messages about the church and our salvation. But verse 1 is actually quite heavy and quite direct. It's because the church is built as believers grow. The church is built as believers grow in their faith and begin to live out the new birth that they've experienced. So the first verse really asks, first couple of verses ask, how should I live in this church that God is building? What attitudes should be recognizable among us? And really verses 1 and 2 give us two attitudes that should be recognizable among us as believers this morning as we gather, as well as uh, the rest of the time that we spend away from this place. Number one is love for one another, and two is a hunger for God's word. May those things be true of us. Love for one another and hunger for God's word. Look at verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil, or excuse me, and envy and all slander. Now I want us to look back at chapter one, verse 22. This is an explanation of the sincere brotherly love in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 2, verse 1 is explaining that further by saying these are the opposites of that. The opposites of that sincere, pure heart kind of love are these things listed in uh, chapter 1. Now again, before we get into the application of that, realize these are evidences of the new birth. 
Chapter 1, verse 22 through 25 talks about being born again by the Word of God. You are dead in your sins before you come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, the power of God's Word enlightens your heart, gives you new spiritual life. And the love that we have for one another is an evidence that that transformation has taken place. Verse 1 of chapter 2, these things are not characteristic of that new birth. Because you've been born again, these attitudes should characterize our lives. Love for one another and hunger for God's word. But verse 1, love is described by its opposites, or it's explained by its opposites. Let's look at each each word of this verse 1 to understand what Peter's telling us. First word, so, that's what we just said. So, therefore, based on, based on everything we just talked about, the end of chapter 1. So, Put away. So yes, this, this passage begins with a strong admonition to rid yourselves of. Take off, throw away like an old nasty set of clothes. Similar to the language used in Colossians and Ephesians for putting off the old self. All the characteristics before the new birth, you need to actively as a believer rid yourself of those things. Put them away. Sarah and I have gotten into gardening just a little bit. Um, I, if you drive by our house, I want to put a sign out that says golf course in progress because it's a little bit of things that we've uh, planted and trying to get uh, growing. But we've enjoyed understanding the organic nature of trying to keep uh, things alive. And we've realized that there are a lot of diseases going around the plants of Clemson. So, and, and we researched a couple of these things. We had roses who we had a disease and we called Clemson Extension and and then we described what we had, and they said, dig it up. I said, that's not what I called you for. I wanted to know a $4 spray from Lowe's to spray on it and take care of it. And they said, you can't do that. They said, what you have is not redeemable. It's going to only pollute the other plants. Dig it out. Burn it, they said. Because we don't want it in the mulch, all right, <laughs> to spread around town. I said, I said, really? So we waited a little while, and sure enough, they started dying off, and we just had to dig them all out. We're trying to disease control all of these things. Did you know plants have all kinds of things that can go wrong with them? Who knew? Who knew? But you know what? Our sin in the church, specifically these opposites of love, are like that rose disease. You have to dig it up. Get it out. Burn it. Rid yourself. Rid your yard of these things. Rid the church of these things. This is the kind of strong language Peter's talking about right from the beginning. Okay, so what are we supposed to get rid of? Put away all. Before we get to that, we're going to talk about the word all. Because Peter, again, is saying a very strong statement. All malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Don't put up with any of this. Now it's interesting that he puts such a strong emphasis on taking care of all these lack of love kind of sins. Most of us have a rating system for our sin. Okay? Even in the church, as we judge others or we look at ourselves, we have a rating system of sins that are very important and sins that are less important. Sins that we really shouldn't have anything to do with and some that we uh, kind of put up with an acceptable amount of. 
There are certain sins that if you found out someone else in the church was committing, you would think, man, we need to get rid of that sin out of our church. We tend to deal with certain sins with a heavy hand. But relational sins, lack of love kind of sins, are not some of those that we tend to deal with quite as strongly in our hearts and minds. We don't see the need to rid ourselves completely of all these evidences of a lack of love. Maybe it's because relationships are very complex and it's difficult to deal with relational sins. Maybe it's because we are so blind to these things in our own lives. But this passage speaks with strong language to awaken in us an awareness of these things and a desire to eradicate these from our own hearts. So I'd like us to all consider our own hearts this morning. These opposites of love that destroy relationships. First of all, malice. This is a general word for wickedness, but specifically in relationships, ill will toward one another. Desiring to harm someone else or desiring their hurt. Deceit. Lying, misleading one another. Again, compare this uh, back to uh, the sincerity of chapter 1, verse 22. Sincere brotherly love. This is the opposite of that deceit. Similarly, the opposite of this is hypocrisy. Pretending to love on the outside, but secretly desiring someone else's downfall on the inside. Envy. Wanting what someone else has. Coveting either their position or their possession. And what a way to divide believers in the church is for us to have covetousness and envy toward one another. Desiring a position, an opportunity, a talent that someone else has. The wealth that we think someone else has versus our lack of wealth. The talent, the opportunities to serve in the church that we may not get. What an opposite of love that divides believers. And the last thing is we are supposed to put away, verse 1, all slander. Speaking ill of someone else. This is not dissimilar from gossip. But slander specifically has a negative tent toward it. Speaking ill of someone else, even if what I say about them is true. And this is where it's difficult for us because we sometimes feel the need to share with someone else just so you're aware that so-and-so has this going on. Um, And it really hurts relationships. It hurts very deeply. When we speak negatively about one another. You see, we, we sometimes find out about things that are weaknesses in one another's lives. Because we all have them. We find out about personality uh, quirks. We find out about sin struggles. We find out about weaknesses. We find out about things that are unflattering. So what do we do with those things? When we know or suspect them about another believer. We have two choices. Two choices. Number one, we can silently forbear. We can believe all things, endure all things, as 1 Corinthians 13 shows us to do in love. 
That means I believe the best. I endure through uh, the weaknesses of those around me like they are doing with me all the time silently. I don't share with other folks. The only other choice, if there's something that needs to be dealt with in that person's life, is to seek their discipleship, to seek their growth, to go to them myself, to confront them about sin or help them with an area of weakness directly. You say, well, what if there's a sin in their life and I don't know how to deal with it? I don't know if I'm qualified to deal with it. I'm not sure the scope of the problem. You can always talk to an elder or a pastor or someone and say, uh, Give me some encouragement and wisdom. How should I, is this something I should deal with? But we're not just going to be listening to that for the sake of slander. We're going to help you then go and seek that person's discipleship and growth. Those are the two options for us. There's no third option. The slander is what we would consider to be a third option is to share with others about this person so they're aware. And we often say it that way, just so you know. Or just so you're aware. And it may even be true. Or we may even suspect it to be true. But it does not help their growth and discipleship to share and to spread these things. We end up being on different teams based on who we know and what we know about one another. And whenever we share something negative about someone else, first of all, there's practical problems. There's great propensity toward misunderstanding the problem. There's great propensity toward exaggerating the problem and making it worse. But spiritually, there are grave consequences. Because in a few moments, we're going to see that those who believe in Christ share in Christ's honor. Jesus has been honored and exalted, and we also who believe have been honored by Christ. When we slander one another, we are dishonoring someone Christ has chosen to honor. And we'll see in the next few verses that believers are like living stones being built together in the church. And we don't want to do or say anything that would divide and separate me from another stone. You see, these relational sins of chapter of verse 1 are contrary to what Christ is doing in building together a unified church. They're not evidences of the new birth that we've experienced. You say, well, that was a little heavy way to begin the sermon. I understand it, but it is something we all need to hear because it follows the pattern in the New Testament of putting off, renewing our mind, and putting on. We're about to talk about a hunger for God's Word. To renew our minds in what God has to say, we have to be willing to eradicate, to cut off, to kill, to dig up and burn uh, the sin that so easily besets us. As we, through the power of the new birth, put aside this sin... We renew our minds in God's word. And that's the second attitude that should be characteristic of the church as Christ is building it, is in verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Relating back to the new birth of chapter 1, You are like newborn infants. And you need to desire, to long for, to crave the spiritual milk. Just as an infant cannot survive without milk. So a believer cannot survive without the Word of God. Gretchen now is two and a half. It's been a little bit of time since we were waking up every three hours. Some of y'all are still waking up every few hours with, with your kids. But when Gretchen was, uh, was very little, 
She could not, not, not just did not want to, she could not live without a regular supply of milk. And uh, we, we learned to be very satisfied if we got two, three-hour stretches of, of sleep put together. We said, six hours of sleep, that was great, right? You realize you can go through a lot more than you think. Uh, now, Gretchen wakes up in the middle of the night, and I'm like a zombie. I'm trying to, trying to act right because I'm not used to that. But infants desire, they need, they crave, they long for nourishment. Now, there are times in Scripture where, the, where milk is used as a metaphor for basic elementary teaching that immature new believers need. That's not exactly what Peter's talking about. Peter's actually applying this to every believer and saying every believer, just as a newborn infant needs milk, every believer needs the Word of God. So this is what he's talking about. Now, what is this milk that he's saying? It says it's pure and spiritual. It's pure in that it's not diluted. It's not contaminated. Um, in contrast with the deceit that we are supposed to put off in chapter in verse 1. And it is spiritual. Now, your translation may say spiritual milk. It may say milk of the word. Uh, the New American Standard and the King James Version translate this, the milk of the word. The phrase literally means the milk related to the word, the word kind of milk. And so Peter's talking about the word of God, God's truth. Believers need to crave, desire, long for the teaching and receiving of God's word. It's a characteristic. It is just a normal characteristic, just as normal as it is for an infant to desire milk. It's normal, predictable characteristic of believers, all believers, to desire God's truth. So much so that if there was an infant who did not desire or, or didn't look like they needed milk, you would say there's something unhealthy about that child. As a believer, there's great spiritual sickness if we do not desire and crave God's word. It's just the normal pattern of those who have been saved. We are to read, to listen to, to meditate, to memorize, to share God's word. I was encouraged this weekend by talking to a friend who said that he's been encouraged over the last few months when he's dealing with a problem to lead with scripture. First of all, look to scripture, not say, well, we all assume we know what the scripture says. So let's talk about something else, but begin by looking at scripture, that desire, that longing. It's evidenced by our faithfulness to God's church. Because hopefully here at the community of faith, we are emphasizing the proclamation, the understanding, the reading of Scripture. So we we show that hunger by faithfully listening to God's Word, even in the community of faith. What happens when we desire this milk of the Word? You will grow. Just as a newborn infant uh, can can gain so much weight in just a short period of time because of all the eating that they're doing. As a believer, as you desire and long for and your soul is nourished by the Word, you will grow spiritually. Verse The end of verse 2. That by it, by the Word, you may grow up into salvation. Now, Peter uses the word salvation not just to talk about what we usually say, When we talk about my testimony of salvation, most of the time we're talking about something that happened already in the past. When I was converted, when I was justified, I was declared righteous because I placed my faith in Jesus Christ initially. 
We say that we look back to our salvation. But Scripture, specifically Peter's writings, talk about salvation more broadly than that. It includes the initial salvation. It includes present salvation, whereby we are being sanctified. And future eternal salvation, whereby we are delivered from this present struggle of sin and we are glorified. So sometimes you might say justified, sanctified, glorified. Peter would say that's all salvation. And so you are going to be growing up into salvation, sanctification, and then in future, eternal salvation. Growth in the word is essential if we're going to attain, obtain that salvation at the end of time. This is what's promised to believers. It's not based on how good our performance is, but it's on Christ holding us into his hand and assuring our perseverance in the faith. Who does this apply to? All believers, specifically as Peter refers to us, those who've tasted that the Lord is good. Verse 3. He refers back to Psalm 34. This is one of many, in this passage, Old Testament allusions or references. Psalm 34 says to taste and see that the Lord is good. And Peter, under inspiration, applies this psalm to New Testament sanctification, salvation and sanctification. If, when it says, if you've tasted, that's not meant for everyone to to leave today doubting that they've received that. But it is to consider this is only for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Christian growth is only for true believers, those who have tasted that the Lord is good. And it alludes to one of the most basic truths in the New Testament. Christians desire to grow. If you've tasted the Lord is good, you will grow up into salvation. That's the normal, characteristic, predictable thing about believers, is that they grow in Christ. Characteristically, Christians desire God's word and they desire to grow. Are there unhealthy times in our Christian life uh, where we struggle with this sometimes more than others? Sure. But characteristically, Christians desire to grow in the Lord and in his word. And in fact, if you're in a season of life where you just have no desire at all for God's word or to grow as a believer, there is reason to pause and say, have I truly tasted that the Lord is good? But if you have, you will desire and the Lord begins to work this through the new birth in our lives. You know, this verse three also describes Christian growth in quite a unique, encouraging way. Growing in Christ is not only a matter of duty. I have to grow. It's not only a matter of obligation. I ought to grow. It is a relationship of enjoyment as we taste the Lord's goodness in a way that leaves us desiring Him more. That's what the Christian life should be like. As we are satisfied in the word and realize that he is our only hope, why then would we go elsewhere? We want to keep finding hope only in Christ. And that's a testament to the fact that we truly have found that the Lord is good if we continue seeking and growing in him. The church is built as God's believers grow in their faith through the word. This is something God's doing. And we're going to move on to verses 4 through 10. And they present Christ as the cornerstone, the living stone. And two different responses to Christ 
as the cornerstone. Coming to him and rejecting him. And there's different outcomes for those who come to him or reject him as the cornerstone. Verse 4 says, as you come to him, a living stone. Verse, verse, uh, this is a looking back to, oh, excuse me. This is one of the places where Christ is seen as a fulfillment of the Old Testament again. As you come to him. Who is verse 3 talking about in relation to Psalm 34? It's the Lord. The Lord of the Old Testament. So when he says, as you come to him, he's talking about the Lord of the Old Testament. But then a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God chosen, that's obviously talking about Jesus Christ. So he's relating again, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the one true God. He's the living stone. He's living because of his resurrection. He's not an inanimate stone. He is a living stone. He has been raised from the dead. And really the focus throughout this passage is on Jesus' exaltation at his resurrection. This is looking back to Psalm 118.22. It says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In Acts 4.11, Peter's sermon relates these, the same idea to, from the Psalms to Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus in his death was despised and rejected, but in his resurrection he was made the cornerstone. In Matthew 21, the parable of the tenants. The tenants kill the owner's son to take his inheritance. It's an illustration of Christ's crucifixion. And then Matthew references the same, the idea of Jesus being the cornerstone, showing that Christ's death fulfilled the prophecy of the rejected cornerstone. And Jesus, the Holy Son of God, rejected by humanity, they did not receive him, they killed him. But then look at verse 4. What a phrase in verse 4. In the sight of God. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God. God had a totally different viewpoint on what was going on when Jesus was rejected. That's what he's saying, but in the sight of God. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God. Something was different from the divine perspective. This reminds me of Joseph when he said, when he met with his brothers, he said, as for you, you meant for e- meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God had a different perspective on this. Even in the death of Christ itself, as related in the sermon in Acts 2, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. They were rejecting him, but in the sight of God, this was not a rejection. This was an exaltation. From the human perspective, Jesus was rejected and killed. But in the sight of God, it says he was, verse 4, chosen and precious. Chosen and precious. God saw the rejection of Jesus differently. As something planned, as something intentional, as something glorious. Jesus was rejected and killed, but in the sight of God was chosen and precious. Now verse 5 now begins to focus on us who come to him in faith. The picture is this. God is building a house for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. 
It's called the church, the people of God, the New Testament people of God. Jesus is the foundation stone. And not just somewhere, anywhere in the foundation. He's the cornerstone, the one who gives shape to the building. And we as believers are the stones making up the walls of the house. That's the picture he's saying. Behold, or excuse me, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Jesus, the living stone, you also as living stones. Much of the New Testament emphasizes our union with Christ, our unity with Christ. That means when we come to faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection becomes ours. What is true of him now becomes true of us. He is the living stone, so we also, like living stones, are built up. This is a picture for the church. Now, Peter doesn't really get specific. He's not, ta- he's not saying, well, this is just for the local church or just for the universal church of all time. This, that's not his point here. But his point was to declare this, that when Christians come together, they constitute a house, a temple. They don't need a physical temple at Jerusalem or anywhere else in order to come and fellowship and commune with God. And just as the sacrificial system pointed to Christ's work to come, so the physical temple of the Old Testament pointed to its fulfillment in the spiritual house, the people of God themselves. This building we're meeting in today is not technically the house of God seven days a week. Uh, We like honoring it. We like taking care of it. It's a special place for us to meet. But it's the house of God right now. Because his believers are here. The living stones have come together. They're gathering together. This is the spiritual house. It says that you are a spiritual house, in verse 5, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Similar to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when it says present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not physical sacrifices, now living bodily service for the Lord as a sacrifice to be a holy priesthood. We'll see it talked about in a moment that uh, a royal priesthood later in verse 9. But Israel was called to be a royal priesthood representing God to the nations. So we as a whole, corporately, the people of God now are to be a royal priesthood representing God to the world by proclaiming his gospel. Now, verse 6 is the Old Testament support for what Peter's been saying. It's citing Isaiah 28, 16, and then later he'll cite uh, Psalm uh, 118. It says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Because we have believed in Christ, we share in his honor. At the day of judgment, we will not be judged and shamed for our sins. We will be honored for Christ's righteousness. This is yet another application of our union with Christ. What is true of him and his honor is true of us who believe in him. But what about those who do not place their faith in Jesus? What about those who do not believe in him as the Messiah, as the chosen one, as the cornerstone? Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and here he quotes Psalm 118, 22, 
the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's looking at Isaiah chapter 8 for that second quotation. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, but he's also a different kind of stone for those who disbelieve. He's a stumbling stone. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. The same Jesus that establishes his church, if you do not believe in him, your rejection of him is how you fall. That's what he's saying here. Those who do not believe in Christ stumble, they fall. As it says, they stumble, Verse the end of verse 8, because they disobey the word. When you don't believe in Christ, when you disobey his word, Christ doesn't, is not the cornerstone of your faith. He's your stumbling block. You say, well, what does that mean? It says, as they were destined to do, the end of verse 8. Let me tell you what God has purposed. God has purposed that Christ, as the stone, determines who is exalted and who is shamed. Who receives honor and who receives judgment. If you believe in this stone, you will be honored. If you do not believe, you will stumble into destruction. It all hinges on what you do with Jesus Christ. This is similar to 1 Corinthians 1.18 when it says, For the word of Christ is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The same word, foolishness to some, the power of God to those who believe. How you respond to Jesus makes the eternal difference. Now, verse 9 shifts back from unbelievers to those of us who come to Christ in faith, but you. He's going to end our passage on a positive note. But you are a chosen race, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Jesus was chosen and precious. Look back at verse 6. So unified with him, you've been chosen. God's church is a chosen possession of God. God intended, he chose, he predestined to show his love to you. A royal priesthood, we've already talked about that. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are his. Therefore, we are to be holy like him. This is glorious. This is good news. But why? So that we can leave here feeling great about ourselves? Wow, we've been chosen. That's wonderful. We're, we're this great group of people. Look at the purpose. All of this leads up to a so that at the middle of verse 9. And that's where we'll conclude this morning. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. This is back, looking back to Hosea. You can study this at another time. You were not a people, but you are now God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Why? So that you can proclaim. So that you can, in worship, in evangelism, speak of the gospel. 
so that you can gather other worshipers to also participate in this house. All is to the glory of God. He's building a house together to praise his name. Now, I happen to know the guy who chooses the hymn. So I chose a hymn at the end of this sermon that says that exactly. I want you to look at that and note that. He's building us a house together to praise his name, to declare his glory. This includes what we're doing in just a moment when we stand and sing. It includes what I'm doing right now in proclaiming that God is glorious through the church. It includes your conversations this week with those who know Christ, who do not know Christ, proclaiming that you have been have been trans, uh, transferred from darkness into light. You say, I don't know how to share the gospel. I don't know what to tell people. Well, look at verse 9. You can just tell them that you're now part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possessions, so that I can proclaim that he is excellent because he called me out of darkness into light. You can say it just that way. You can say sin is dark and righteousness of Christ is the light that God has given me. It's so that we can proclaim this. God is building his church through Christ, the living stone. He's the foundation. We are the stones coming together to praise his excellent name. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd encourage us through the word this morning. Would we know our purpose That we are chosen to be unified with Christ in his honor so that we can declare that he is excellent. Really, the purpose of our existence is worship and expanding your fame. We've received your mercy that we don't deserve. We don't come before you today because, uh, because of our performance. We don't even get past verse 1 of chapter 2 without failing daily. We come because we need and experience your mercy. Would you remove, Father, any evidences of these sins in chapter in verse 1 of chapter 2 that would be dividing the building you are trying to build? Would you increase in each believer here today their hunger for the word. Would you allow us to desire and crave the milk of the word? Thank you for Jesus Christ, our faith, the church is built upon him. In Jesus' name, amen.